0: You're listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. On today's show, we sit down with Jeff Thomas, who is the senior vice president of Nasdaq Corporate Service Business Unit. Jeff oversees NASTEC's new listings and capital market businesses. Previously to this, he was a president of liquidity solutions at Nasdaq private market, and before that, Jeff held senior positions at Second Market, Gerson Lehman Group, and Altura Corp. On today's show, we'll talk about what is the investment community saying about the IPOs in 2019? What is a direct listing and is it different than a traditional IPO? Environmental social governance? What is this trend so many are talking about? And what emergent technology is Nasdaq implementing? This and much more on today's episode of Silicon Valley. Welcome to the Silicon Valley podcast with your host, Sean Flynn, who interviews famous entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, and leaders in tech. Learn their secrets and see tomorrow's world today. Now, Jeff, tell me a little bit about your background and how you got involved with NASDAQ.
1: So before NASDAQ, I worked at a company called Second Market. Second Market was early in the secondary trading space for private companies. So I worked there from 2010 to 2012 and ran their West Coast. I took a break for a year in 2013 to join a startup here in the Valley, and then NASDAQ came calling at the end of the year, and they were looking to start a competitor the Second Market. They'd formed a joint venture with Shares Post called NASDAQ Private Market, and they were looking for somebody to lead their go-to-market team for that effort. So I joined up with NASDAQ. We launched a competitor to my old firm. We competed against them for about a year and a half, and then we ultimately ended up acquiring Second Market. And so I was reunited with all my old colleagues. So that was the way I kind of got into NASDAQ. What's the history
0: of NASDAQ? How did it come to be what it is today?
1: So NASDAQ was started in 1971. It was always around bringing technology to have more efficiency in the capital markets. So at the time, the New York Stock Exchange was the dominant player in the U.S. equities market. They literally traded stocks using pieces of paper passed around by people on the floor of the exchange. And NASDAQ brought this revolutionary idea that you could automate that process with computers. Fast forward to today, one in 10 securities transactions around the world runs through NASDAQ technology. So we've been on this journey since 1971, always as the kind of incumbent challenger in the space, looking for opportunities to bring technology that can help bring efficiencies
0: to the capital markets. So I've heard of the national market system. How has that impacted trade-in and traders? Sure. So if you go back, and this gets
1: a little bit into the history of the exchanges, Again, Nasdaq was the the first electronic exchange. We felt like that made markets more efficient. It made price discovery more efficient. While the New York Stock Exchange had these folks called specialists who were on the floor of the exchange who got this privileged position in the marketplace to create liquidity. We thought that having, you know, computers to do the matching of buyers and sellers would be more efficient in the long run. There were a number of startup electronic crossing networks or ECNs that came to pass. NASDAQ, of course, identified that as a a big trend. We acquired one. New York acquired one. And more and more of the volume was moving off floor to the electronic crossing networks. And so the SEC was obviously watching this and they said, well, wouldn't it make more sense if all markets were interconnected and if no matter where you put your order in, it got routed to the market with the best price at the best time? And so that was what they rolled out through Reg NMS in 2006, and it mandated that all exchanges basically go electronic, that when an investor puts in their order through whatever broker-dealer, the broker-dealer then puts that into the market, that that order then has to get routed to this uh, central order book, where then wherever the venue with the best price at the best time is, that's where your order will get executed. And that could be a lit exchange. So it could be one of the national exchanges that posts the bids and the offers between buyers and sellers, or it could be a dark pool or an internalizer where a bank or other you know financial firm is looking to cross their own client orders. So what the lit exchanges do is they basically bring together buyers and sellers, and then they post what's known as the national best bid and offer. So if a bank is going to internalize an order, they have to cross it at that national best bid or offer, NBBO or they have to route it to a lit exchange. And so what the exchanges are doing, they're creating the price discovery mechanism, and what that does is that tightens the overall spreads in the market and helps to ensure investors are getting efficient execution. The benefit of the dark pools is that then the banks or the internalizers can cross those orders without having to post their clients' interests publicly. Now, that trade does have to get printed through the Nasdaq Trade Reporting Facility so that the fact that a trade happened at that price is known publicly but that discovery of the price is not happening in the public domain. So that's one of the reasons we think it's really important to try to encourage more flow to go to lit venues, because we think that that provides better price discovery and better investor outcomes. But there's always been that kind of tension since the SEC rolled out Reagan you know, over 10 years ago now.
0: Walk me through, because that whole process is a little overwhelming, to be honest. Say I place a trade at uh, Charles Schwab or Robinhood or one of these online platforms, what's step-by-step that's actually taking place?
1: Sure. So you're going to put in an order. It's either going to be a market order where you're saying, hey, I want to buy or sell shares at the prevailing market price, or a limit order where you say, I want to buy or sell at this price. In the case of retail brokerage firms, they have the opportunity to send that order to an exchange where it can get executed through the whole rig- MS structure. Or there's this whole other option where they can sell their order flow to what's known as wholesalers, which are groups that will aggregate retail orders and then execute those orders either through their own internal matching engines or through the lit exchanges. But in either case, it's always going to have to be done at that best prevailing price that we talked about, the NBBO. So it literally can go through multiple steps before your order actually gets executed. And then of course, once your order gets executed, It's going to take what's known as T plus two or two days to settle before your trade is actually executed and the cash ends up in your bank. And then when a company goes public, what's the process for that? Well, so just like if you are sitting there on your Robinhood account and you submit a buy order, right, you're going to go out and try to buy that stock. Or say you want to sell stock, you'd go and execute a sell order of shares that you own. With an IPO, it's really no different. The company's saying, hey, we want to go sell shares into the market. So they'll hire what's known as an underwriter, uh, which is a broker dealer, and they'll hire that underwriter to go and market those shares for them. So the net effect is really it's the same process. The company would sell those new shares to the underwriter, underwrite the offering by buying those shares, and then the underwriter goes out and places those shares or sells those shares on to their end clients, which would be the investors of those shares. Typically, as part of that process, The underwriter will take a company out on a two-week roadshow. They'll do an analyst teach-in day where the company educates the analysts about their financial model so that those analysts can then write good research coverage on those stocks. And all of that will culminate at the end of the roadshow where they decide on the pricing. So the company and the banks have been on a two-week process to talk to all the investors, try to generate demand. You'll often hear about the book being oversubscribed by X amount, 10X, 20X, 30X. So People know they're not going to get as many shares as they want. So they're saying, I want you know a million shares when they know they're probably going to get cut back to 100,000 shares. So they go through that process. They have all this demand on their books, and then they have to decide who they're going to allocate those shares to. So they'll go through, they'll allocate those shares, and the bank will sell those shares onto those investors at a certain price. The next day, everybody wakes up, they come to NASDAQ, and that's when we execute what's known as the opening cross. So all the investors that bought stock the night before from the underwriters now have the opportunity to sell those shares into the market. Equally the comp- or the investors that didn't get shares or as many shares as they wanted the night before have the opportunity to put buy orders into the market. And we go through this price discovery process at NASDAQ where we're gathering up all the buy and sell orders. It usually takes, you know, from 30 minutes to sometimes three hours to build that book. And the lead underwriter is often the stabilization agent for that process. And so the stabilization agent's role is to organize that opening cross. They get something that's known as the Green Shoe or the Underwriters Over allotment Option. Green Shoe just sounds cooler, and that's fifteen percent of the number of shares that were sold the night before. Where the stabilization agent can actually put their own balance sheet to work to buy those shares, and then either buy or sell those shares in that opening cross to help stabilize the stock on day one. So we go through this whole process. Everybody's at NASDAQ. They're looking over. Our IPO execution officer's shoulder. We have the software called the Book Viewer. We can actually see all the buy and sell orders coming in. The stabilization agent gets the full view of the the book through that. Everybody on the street gets the Nasdaq opening cross indicator, so they can see where their shares, their clients' buy and sell orders are coming in, if they're going to get executed or not, and what the price is indicating at. At some point in the morning, the stabilization will say, "Okay, I like where the book's at. You know, we've got a decent number of the shares that we sold last night. We'll get." executed in the opening cross, usually around 15-20% of the shares that they sold the night before they want to see go off in the opening cross. They also look for the levels below, the price at which they're going to open the stock. So they want to make sure they have good supply and demand there to keep the stock trading smoothly throughout the day. Again, that can be client orders, it can be their orders using the the green shoe. And once they say okay, we're ready to open the stock, we confirm back, we push the button, it runs the auction, and then the stock opens for regular way trading. Once it goes into regular way trading, obviously the stock can go down. All the broker dealers in the street are, again, executing their client orders on that stock. All those trades are then going through the whole Reg MS or the National Market Structure System where the stock's then trading on all venues. So that opening cross is one of the few times where a stock is going to trade on a single venue where we can aggregate all the buy and the sell orders. The other times that happens is at the opening and the closing every day. So the opening cross and the closing cross every day is executed on a company's listed venue. All the trading from 9:30 to 4 throughout the day, that all happens across the entire market. So it's this really interesting point when you can kind of aggregate all those buy and sell orders. And what's really unique about uh, opening an IPO is that we get to halt the stock. So it doesn't open regular way at 9:30, right? But we go through this process where you can actually watch the stock come to life, right? And so we talk a little bit with our Issuer clients, you know, when you go public, it's kind of like a a wedding. Being public is the marriage. Well, I always refer to this opening cross as like the birth of your first child because this is when the stock literally comes to life. You get to watch it kind of the price form. And again, all the people who are selling into that opening cross are people you just sold the stock to the night before. And all the people that are buying are the people that didn't get shares the night before. Right. So it's this really interesting process where the companies have been out on the roadshow for two weeks talking to all these different investors there's always more demand than there is supply for the IPO shares. And so that's one of the reasons why you'll often see the price of an IPO go up on the first day, right? Because there's a limited supply. And often one of the, the tougher things that first opening cross, especially on a hot IPO, is getting sellers to come into the market. So if you just bought the shares the night before at $20 and the stock's indicating at 30, okay, you can book a 50% gain, but who knows how much higher it's going to go up. And so that's what the stabilization is doing, going out, talking to all those clients who, you know, again, they just placed the shares to last night and trying to either get them to, to come in as buyers or sellers into the market.
0: And is there a certain range on that first day that's considered a big win, or what is a win for everyone involved in this process?
1: That really depends, one, on what seat you're sitting in, and then two, what's your time horizon, right? So from the company's perspective, an IPO is a financing event you're going out and you're selling shares to the underwriter, and then they're placing them out to their client. And the price at which they sell them to their client, net of their fees, is the amount of proceeds that the company gets. So they obviously want the highest price possible. That's going to reduce the dilution to their existing shareholders, and it's going to allow them to raise capital in the most cost-effective way. If you're one of those investors who's buying these shares, again, you're buying stock that's never traded on an exchange before. You maybe have been tracking the company for a while, but there's definitely no history in terms of their stock performance, you're taking a big bet on that stock. And you're saying, okay, I believe in this company. I want to get in at the beginning of their life as a public company, but there's risk there, right? And so what they want is to be compensated for that risk where they don't expect to you know, buy the stock and have it go down on the first day. So they want to see some appreciation. So those are kind of the two things that are in balance on day one. But then as you kind of look at the time horizon, right, put yourself in the CFO's shoes of the company you're going out and educating investors, not just about what the stock's worth today, but what you think it's going to be worth in three, six, 12, 18 months, right? And you're saying, here's you know what we think we can do over that time frame. The analysts are building their models according to that. And they're kind of implicitly then talking about what they think they can do to hit that performance. So the higher you price the stock for the IPO, the higher those expectations are, Three, six, 12, 18 months out. So that's going to make the company's job that much harder if the stock is priced higher to achieve those uh, expectations. There's also this concept um, when you're talking about um, Wall Street models, right? You want to beat and raise. So the analysts will have kind of consensus estimates. They'll say, we think the company is going to make a dollar per share this quarter. As a company, you want to come out and uh, have a dollar and five cents per share. And then you want to be able to raise how the analysts raise their guidance the next quarter, as they'll say okay. But as you can see, if that keeps happening and keeps ratcheting it up, better to start on a low number if you want to beat and raise in consecutive quarters than if you start at a high number, which you know if you price the stock at a high point for the IPO, you're kind of implicitly saying hey we're going to hit a much higher earnings per share faster than if we hit a low number. The other amazing thing about the U.S. capital markets is a lot of companies are not making any profit right? And so as an investor, the long-term value of a company is really a discount on their future cash flows. So if the company's not even cash flow positive yet, you're making a bet that this company is going to grow fast enough grow their revenue faster than their expenses, where at some point they're going to cross over and they're going to start generating profit and cash flow. And so what you're doing is you're prepaying today for the expectation of future cash flows tomorrow. And it may be years before a company hits that. So you're building a multi-year model as an investor saying, here's when I think this company is going to achieve profitability, and here's what I think that's worth today. So in both cases, whether you're the CFO at the company or the investor, you have to have this multi-year time horizon when you're trying to figure out what the price is that you're willing to sell or buy the shares at the IPO so that you make sure that you know, on the company side, you're able to hit those promises or on the investor side that you believe that the company can meet those promises. So a lot of people get caught up on, okay, day one, they priced the stock at 20, it popped up to 40 is 100% gain on day one. That doesn't really change that contract between the company and the investor. If they sold stock at $20 a share, they're worried about where the stock's going to be trading a year from now, not 24 hours from now. Companies oftentimes are only going to sell 10 to 15% of their outstanding shares in an IPO. So it's a small percentage of the company that's trading on day one. The vast majority of shares are subject to a lockup agreement for six months or 180 days. And so when you watch a stock trading in that first six-month period, you're only watching the shares that they sold in the IPO trade. So it's a very small number of the shares. There's not a lot of what we call liquidity in the market yet. You know, There could be a high level of trading, but it's not a small, high number of shares. And then once you get to the end of that six-month period, that's when the lockup is released employees can sell their stock. The venture capital or private equity investors can either sell shares into the market or potentially distribute the shares to their LPs. Founders and the management can then sell, although they have to disclose any sales through an 8K, which oftentimes will have material impacts on the stock. If you see the CEO selling a bunch of stock, maybe you want to think twice about you know, buying it. And so that's when you start to see all of these new shares come to the market. And of course, everybody knows that. So leading up to that lockup release, you've got people that are saying, okay, there's going to be more supply coming to the market. I think the the stock price is going to go down. And so you can, of course, go place that bet in the market by being short the stock. You can look at their performance over the first couple of quarters and say, well, they've been beating their numbers. I think they're going to keep beating their numbers. I think there's going to be a lot of demand for the stock. So you can bet the stock's going to go up after that. And I think a lot of people spend a lot of time thinking about what happens to stock performance around the expiration of the lockup provision. And I think the one thing that's true is if a company's performing and hitting their numbers, their stock generally goes up. Right. If investors believe that you are able to achieve what you said you can achieve and you have a demonstrated track record of doing that, people are going to buy the stock. If companies come out of the gate and they miss on their first quarter earnings, or they have a stumble or they have some other, you know, headwind, a new competitor comes into the market, something like that, that usually has a lot more to do with the price that people are willing to pay for the stock than the number of shares that are out there. Um, But when you have that kind of smaller number of shares, because it is a smaller pool, you can see a lot more volatility day to day on the stock.
0: Do you think there's more pressure or excitement on the IPO or when the lockup period ends? I think the IPO is just a uniquely, it's this unique point in time,
1: right? There's a lot of media focus on the companies. There's a lot of focus on where you're going to price or where the underwriter is going to price those shares the night of the IPO. The IPO roadshow is a grueling process, right? It's two weeks of nonstop back-to-back meetings. And so I think that is where there's a lot more focus and pressure. I think the lockup expiration is maybe uh, where there's more anxiety, right? So you have a long time to wait for it. You know it's coming. You have all these other factors at play in terms of how you're doing as a business. You've been through your first earnings call. How are you doing as a business? How are investors responding to the story? So I think there's
0: more anxiety there, but I think there's more pressure around the IPO. Let's go back to some of the anticipated IPOs of 2019. Some of them didn't perform as well as expected. What's the investment community saying about these deals? So there
1: have been a number of kind of high profile deals that underperformed on day one, where they went out and they priced their shares at a level that both the underwriters and the management thought there's plenty of demand. They came out the next day and a lot of the folks that said they were going to be long-term holders decided they wanted to be sellers. And a lot of the demand that they thought they had in the book building process didn't materialize. And so then what happens when there's more sellers than buyers? The stock trades down. Now, uh, on average in 2019, IPOs were up 15%. On average, if you're an investor and you bought every single IPO, you're up 15% on the year. So that's why we continue to see a lot of momentum through the IPO market. Now, I think when a, a handful of kind of high profile deals trade down, that's when people start to say, oh, The IPO market's broken, the window's closed. And that can have a material impact on the psychology of investors because then the question is are the next deals going to perform? Do the bankers have a good handle on the demand for those shares? Is management trying to stretch too far and get too much to reduce their dilution? But I think that on the whole, the markets as a whole have performed very well in 2019. And so IPOs, given their risk, are still a a decent investment. And as you kind of then we look out into what's coming up in 2020. Some of the things that companies will look at when they're thinking about when or how to go public, one, it's obviously valuations, right? So what are their peers or their their parable companies known as their comps trading at? They'll look at the revenue multiples for their peers, the earnings per share multiples, if they have any profits for their peers. And then they'll also look at the relative volatility of the market. There's this one metric called the volatility index known in the industry as the VIX, and it's called the fear gauge. So it measures the relative volatility in the market. The, if the market is very fearful, the stock market's going to jump around a lot. If everybody's really calm, it'll stay nice and low. And so anytime the VIX gets above 20, bankers start to say, hey, maybe we got to hold off on the IPO for now because we don't want to go out in a volatile time because we're out there trying to price your IPO. And then all of a sudden, if the market drops by 10%, we could change the amount that we'd be able to get you for that. But if the VIX is nice and low under 20, markets are relatively calm, it's easier to go out Make sure the investors are focused on your story. For the vast majority of 2019, we did see the VIX was below 20. Multiples were at an all-time high. I mean, tech had its best year in like 10 years. So specifically, tech IPOs had a a good environment to go public in in 2019. As we look out into 2020, the one thing that's certain is we're going to have a presidential election. Nobody can foresee the outcome of the election. There's obviously going to be a lot of opinions (laughs) on both sides. But one thing that's true is that there will be a lot of media coverage there will be a lot of uncertainty around the future of our tax policy, our monetary policy, the future direction we go as a country. And if there's one thing that the market hates, it's uncertainty. Because again, you go back to all those reachers, analysts trying to build their models. They're not just looking at company specific issues, they're looking at the economy as a whole. You know, What's US GDP going to be? What do we think we're going to do with interest rate? All of these really important questions get built into those models. And if all of a sudden the projections for those are changing wildly from day to day based on who they think is going to be sitting in the White House, that can change their view on those individual stocks, the view on the market, that can raise then the volatility index, the VIX can get up higher. And so it can make it harder to price an IPO. So on average in election years, we see fewer IPOs than you do in in non-election years.
0: Can you talk about the disconnect between public and private valuations?
1: Sure. So it, it goes back to what we talked a little bit about before right? So in all cases, investors that are buying shares in a company that has yet to achieve profitability, they're generally valuing future growth. So in private companies, there's what's known as the J curve. So companies go out and they talk to their VCs and they say, hey, we're going to lose a lot of money for a while, but then we're going to hit this rapid expansion and growth phase. And so if you think about the way a letter J looks, you're going to dip down at first into the negative, 6, 12, 36, 72 months out man, things are going to be going like gangbusters. And so private investors are saying, okay, when do we think this company is going to be able to build a product that meets a market need in a defensible way where they're going to see this really rapid growth, and then they'll see that crossover point. What we've seen over the past 10 years is there's been this flood of capital into the private markets. And so that's happened for a number of reasons. One, the regulations to be a public company have increased over the past couple of decades. Two, the the challenges that public companies face due to some of those regulatory and market structure issues that we've talked about have gone up. And so companies on average are now waiting twice as long to go public. And so that means that you see fewer new issues every year. And it means that if you are an investor who's trying to generate outsized returns or alpha for your clients, you now have a smaller subset of companies to go invest in. So you're going to now start looking into the private markets to say, hey, can we invest in this company before they go public? Over the past decade, you've seen all the big mutual fund complexes, Fidelity, T. Rowe, Wellington, and the like, investing in private companies. You've seen sovereign wealth funds coming in and saying, hey, we're, we're not getting a great return. In the public markets, there's not a lot of alpha there, so let's invest in private markets. And you've seen a couple of really big funds, like the, the SoftBank Vision Fund get raised. And again, there was a lot of sovereign wealth there. There was also just other unique long-term investors who are saying, look, we want to invest for the long-term. We're going to pay now for future growth. And a lot of those funds came in and, and started giving private companies more capital than, frankly, they've ever had before, right? If you go back even you know, 10, 15 years ago, you know a Series A was $3 million, right? A Series C was $20 million. There's now Series A uh, rounds that are getting done over $100 million. You see multiple rounds of over a billion dollars in private capital getting done every year. So it's just a, a massive amount of capital. You used to have to go public to raise that much money. And now you can get that capital as a private company. And so what does that do? You now have all this cash on the balance sheet. Your investors are telling you they want you to grow because they want you to get through that J curve and get to that rapid expansion. And so you get all this capital, you start to spend a lot of money, which means you're, you're burning way more cash than you're bringing in revenue. And so you have all these big losses, right? So private investors have always been more tolerant of that than public investors. And so what you've seen now this year and through 2019 companies that are still burning a lot of cash have come public. And they've had this ready supply of private capital to fund all of this expansion, all of this growth. And now public investors are sitting there saying, okay, when are you going to cross that chasm and, and get to the steep part of the J curve? Because we want to start seeing profit. And a lot of companies that went public in 2019 said, yeah, we'll, we'll be profitable in you know 2022, 2023 and that was kind of looking five years out. And towards the end of 2019, what you started seeing was investors starting to pull back a little bit on the growth narrative saying, okay, great. We still want to see growth, but we, we want to see you get to profitability faster. You saw some companies kind of come in and announce, hey, we're going to get to profitability faster. And I think what you'll see throughout the, the balance of 2020 is a little bit more of a focus on profitable growth, when companies are going to get to that steep part of the J curve, And that's something that they obviously have to kind of moderate in terms of how much they're spending on sales, how much they're spending on marketing, research and development. You know, you always want to be investing in your future growth, but there's always that trade-off. And so I think as we kind of move forward in 2020, you're going to be looking for companies to come public that have a clearer path to profitability, where investors can kind of wrap their head around the timelines.
0: It was mentioned that regulations are getting tougher and tougher, especially over the last decade. As a general consensus, has it been a good change or has there been kind of some pushback or people saying, hey, it's gone too far? You know, I
1: think our view at NASDAQ is there's definitely too many regulations that are kind of inhibiting companies' desire to go public. So we've had a a platform out there for the past few years called Project Revitalize, which is our multi-point plan on capital markets reform efforts. It's on multiple fronts. It's around regulatory reform, market structure reform, and then how do you promote more uh, long-term thinking in the public markets. So the challenging thing is there's definitely no you know, one answer. There's a lot of things that create burdens around being a public company. What is true is that if you keep heaping more and more regulations on public companies, we've seen that companies will stay private longer. And the real impact of that is that Main Street America and everyday investors don't get the opportunity to participate in the growth of those companies. So if you look at all of the biggest tech companies in the world right now, Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, Google, they all went public fairly early in their life cycles. And a lot of the returns that investors realized happened post-IPO versus if you look at companies today that are waiting 10 to 15 years to go public, a lot of them are pretty fully valued when they go public. And so that means that retail investors in the US don't have the same opportunities to earn those returns. And where are those returns going? They're going to the big institutional investors, the sovereign wealth funds, the family offices. And so when you talk about wealth inequality in America, we think that this is one of the key factors that drives that. If everyday Americans don't have the opportunity to go invest in high growth IPOs at an early stage in their life cycle, it's very, very hard for them to catch up. And some people say, well, but wait, Fidelity, T. Rowe, Wellington, all these mutual fund complexes that everyday Americans are invested in are investing in these private companies and yeah sure they are with 1 to 5% of their assets under management you know even if those you know go up 10x it's still not a material part of the overall returns of those funds right for an everyday american it's just not the same as if you could go and buy shares at the amazon ipo in 1997 when they were valued at 400 million dollars and today they're valued at nearly a trillion dollars those kind of returns over the 20 years that's what people want to see and expect out of the IPO market in the U.S., and it's just hard to imagine if a company is going public today at a ten or a fifty billion dollar valuation that you're going to see those same
0: kind of returns
1: in terms of a multiple, just because they've got they're much bigger companies when they come
0: public. And some of the companies this past year have gone public through a direct listed. Can you kind of talk about what the difference between that and a traditional IPO is, and maybe some of the benefits? So one thing I like to say is that. Every IPO is a direct listing.
1: So we talked about the fact that when you go public, the company sells shares to an underwriter who then sells those on to their client and the next day they come into Nasdaq and they go through that process of the opening cross. With a direct listing, you're basically just cutting out the process of the company selling shares to the underwriter who's selling them on to their clients and instead you're doing an opening cross with all the existing shares on the company's cap table. So what does that mean? First, it means the company's not raising capital right? Because they're not selling new shares into the market. Second, it means that the existing investors are not subject to a lockup agreement. So all of the employees and all of the investors in the company can actually sell and do the opening cross on day one, day two, at any point they want to, because those shares are not subject to that lockup agreement. So what does that make that first day of trading look like? Well, you're going to have many more shares available, right? In a traditional IPO, we talked about how companies only sell 10 to 15% of their shares and through an IPO and those are the only ones that are eligible for that opening cross with a direct listing you could theoretically have 100% of the shares available to go into that opening cross so you could actually see a much higher volume of shares trading over those first few days and so the proponents of direct listings would say well that means that's good that means that a company is going to get to a mature trading profile much faster in their life cycle right because You're not going to have this limited supply. You're going to have higher volume. You're going to get to true price discovery faster rather than waiting six months for the lockup to expire and all those other shares to come to the market and for the market to find its true price. You're also going to see potentially more volatility, right? Because you're not going out through that kind of traditional process to allocate those shares, you know, by hand to specific investors with an understanding of what those folks are likely to do. You're saying to all your existing shareholders, sell if you want to, hold if you want to. The company then has to also go out and generate the demand for those shares. In a IPO, the investment bank is hired as an underwriter. So they take on a liability to buy those shares and they then have the responsibility to go educate the investors and market the stock. In the case of a direct listing, companies will still hire an investment bank, but they hire them as a financial advisor. And because they don't have that underwriting liability, they can't go market the stock. So the company has to go market the stock to investors themselves. They'll oftentimes do that through both face-to-face meetings. But also through an investor day, which will be, you know, broadcast on the internet, available to all investors. Again, one of the things that folks that support direct listings talk about is it's a much more democratic process. There's equal access. It's not a question of are you one of the firms on the roadshow or not? It's everybody's gonna get access to the same information. You can also, you know, make the case that the investor day is often multiple hours long, versus in a roadshow, you're typically doing 40-minute meetings. So you're able to cover a lot more material and provide a lot more information. And then the last thing that's really different about an IPO and a direct listing is that in an IPO, your registration statement, your S1, doesn't become effective until the night before when you're actually pricing the stock. With a direct listing, your registration statement goes effective about 10 days prior to the opening cross. And what that means is the company has 10 days in which they can do that investor day, and they can actually provide forward-looking guidance. Right? So in a traditional IPO, you say, here's how we've done. In a direct listing, you can and, and really need to say, here's how we think we're going to do. And that's because you don't have the investment banks out there doing that marketing on your behalf, writing that research, saying, here's what we think they're going to do. It's literally the company saying, here's our forward-looking guidance for the next period of time and how we think we're going to do.
0: So do you think there's going to be more direct listings in the future, or do you think there's going to be kind of a modified version of what's happening?
1: I think we'll see more direct listings next year than we had this year. That's not a, a bold statement since we only had a handful this year. But I do think that we're going to continue to see innovations in the space. So one of the things that we're looking at closely is what would it take to allow a company to sell shares into a direct listing? So to kind of combine the best of both worlds, where a company can go to market with a direct listing, you know, have the ability to have all their shareholders sell immediately, but then also allow the company to raise capital. Now that'll be probably a multi-year process, the SEC to kind of go out and think about all the potential implications of that. But I think that'll be one of the big innovations that we're we're looking forward to.
0: What other emerging technologies is Nasdaq looking at?
1: So we've been early early adopters in blockchain. We've worked a lot through a number of proof of concepts around what is really the use case for blockchain outside of crypto. So everybody knows blockchain is the underlying technology for Bitcoin. Uh, and everybody always asks, when's NASDAQ going to launch a, a Bitcoin exchange? But we kind of looked through that to the technology of blockchain and said, okay, what's a really good use case for a distributed ledger technology that's an immutable source of truth? And one of the things we started working on early was the topic of proxy voting. When you're a shareholder in a public company, you get the chance to vote your shares on a number of issues. It's known mm-hmm. as the proxy, it happens once a year. In the US, you're sent a paper ballot in the mail, you mail it in. Uh, you really don't know if your vote got counted. It's a very opaque process. It's not very transparent. And you know it's it's one of the big pain points for public companies. So we uh, early on did a proof of concept with Estonia, which is a very forward-thinking nation. I think they literally have like a two-factor authentication technology for their citizens. Their citizens own all their own data. So again, these guys are a very forward-thinking country. And we ran a proof of concept with them using our blockchain technology to enable proxy voting. And then uh, one of the markets in South Africa took note, and they looked at uh, that technology and ran a proof of concept as well, and looked at launching that in uh, Q4 of 2019 to actually facilitate their proxy voting. So when the SEC came calling to us in 2019 and said, hey, what do you guys think we can improve about the, the proxy process? We said, well, there's a lot. This is like the number one thing that our companies complain to us about. And so we wrote a comment paper back to the SEC. We mainly focused on kind of the the process and the participants in the proxy process. So investors own thousands of positions, and uh, it's hard for them to track that and stay on top of all the different issues that are facing the companies that they own. So they outsource a lot of that to proxy advisory firms. There's really only been two proxy advisory firms uh, for a long time. They sit at a pretty powerful intersection, and over the years had developed a business model where they would come up with their recommendations. And if the companies didn't like those recommendations, they developed consulting arms where the companies could pay to learn more about their model. Well, if you're, you know, when we went to DC to explain this to the politicians, they said, that sounds like a protection racket. We said, well, those are your words, not ours. And why does a politician know so much about protection rackets? But okay. <laughs> so that kind of resonated as really one of the, the top issues. And there's also this really interesting rule, longstanding rule in the US capital markets, where if you own two thousand dollars worth of stock in a company, you can petition the company to put something on the annual, in their annual proxy process. And this is one of those rules that just hadn't been reviewed in decades, right? And today, you know, you've got Apple worth, you know, nearly a trillion dollars and somebody who owns, you know, two thousand dollars worth of stock can go to, to Tim Cook and say, Here's what here's how I think we should be running the company. And that's good. It's it's democratic. It kind of, you know, gets to the core of what America is. But we went to talk to, to, especially the people in Congress. We said, "Well, if a, a citizen in your district was able to put something up for a vote in front of Congress, they only lived in your city for I don't know two thousand days, something like that. Is that the way you think Congress should run?" I said, "Well, no, of course not. That's why we're elected, right? We're here to figure out. Well, yeah, that's why we have management public companies <laughs> to kind of figure out what are the big issues. So, so anyway, so that was a lot of what we focused on. Was okay. How can we reduce the influence of proxy advisory firms?" How can we increase the threshold for proxy access? Those we thought were really two big issues. And and at the end of 2019, the SEC actually took the step to propose new rules around that and went through a comment period to hear from market participants, what do they think about these proposed rules, a lot of which aligned with our suggestions. And of course, there's always two sides to every argument. A lot of people came in from the investment community and said, hey, we kind of like the current system. We get good advice cheaply and don't have to worry about any kind of thresholds if we want to put something on there but the companies when we when we started this process at one point sent in a letter to 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 the SEC from our on behalf of our issuers and we over a course of two weeks went out to all our companies and said do you want to put your name on this and kind of add your support for this companies usually don't want to put their name on something that's going to the SEC it's just probably best not to you know we had over 300 companies sign a letter and support and so that's, that was one of the really proud moments for our, our government affairs team uh, over the course of 2019 was getting the, the forward progress on the, that proxy reform. But to bring it back to blockchain, right? So we talked about Estonia, we talked about South Africa. We mentioned in that uh, initial position paper, hey, there's other great technologies out there besides pieces of paper, one of which is blockchain, which provides transparency, it provides an immutable ledger. So hey, wouldn't that make a lot of sense? You think about it. The, the New York Stock Exchange was around for a couple hundred years before Nasdaq came along. <laughs> Took us forty years to get the SEC to realize we should make the markets electronic. So these things don't happen quickly, right? And so I wouldn't expect that you know we're going to roll out blockchain-based proxy voting in the U.S. in 2020. But it sure seems like it's something that could make a lot of sense. And you know, when you talk about needing to have a high trust, high integrity system uh, with high levels of transparency, the ability for investors to know that they could vote and to know how that their vote counted. All that stuff seems pretty important to us in terms of maintaining high integrity capital markets. So we're, we're going to keep pushing for it.
0: Can blockchain be used in other ways as well? Maybe the transparency of transactions or the settlement date? There's been a number of folks that have, are working on that as well. Australia is actually
1: doing a big project. I think they're in about year five of trying to revamp their whole settlement system onto uh, to blockchain. I know there's been a lot in the derivative space. Where companies are looking to to leverage blockchain to try to smooth and ease that when you kind of get to the core U.S. equity markets, though they move pretty fast. <laughs> we are um, trading uh, matching engine uh, runs in microseconds, so that's a really really short period of time. And there's one thing about blockchain specifically, if you look like Bitcoin, um, the hashing algorithms that they use to verify transactions and those kind of things, uh, they don't they don't run at that that speed yet, right? So when you have a lot of legacy infrastructure and when you have a very high-speed market, it doesn't mean that it won't ultimately be adopted in that way,
0: but um, we think it's probably a pretty
1: long project in terms of the, the U.S.
0: equity markets. And There's a lot of interest in environmental, social, and governance. Can you talk a little bit about this trend? Sure. So when I go out and talk to the
1: uh, CFOs of our listed companies, this is the number one topic that comes up. Right. If you go back even two years ago, If I would have brought this up uh, to a CFO, they'd say, "I, I really don't hear about that. Investors aren't really asking me about that. Now we're getting inbound calls from the boards of directors of public companies saying, We see all the money that's flowing into ESG focused funds. We've seen all the negative press that comes out when you have poor governance controls. We see all the focus on creating environmentally friendly and sustainable companies. We need to get ahead of this. And this is not just the companies you'd expect, this is companies in the energy industry. This is people in manufacturing, this is people across the board saying, "Hey, if this is where investment dollars are going to flow, we need to get ahead of this. And when you look at the ESG landscape, it's pretty complex. There's about 40 different frameworks that are out there. They all have their own questionnaire or stats that they try to gather through your website or other means. And when you stack all those questionnaires up, you get to over a thousand different questions that companies have to decide one, Do they want to report on them? And then, two, can they report on them? Do they have the data? Is that data auditable? Are they confident that if they're disclosing something publicly, they're doing it accurately? And so it's a huge challenge for companies to go out and say, okay, we want to make sure we have a good ESG rating. All right, well, which framework do we want to get focused on? Right? What's that framework asking for in terms of disclosure? How are we going to gather that data in a repeatable and auditable way? and oh, by the way, none of this is required, right? This isn't like this has to go into your Ks or Qs. This is all people are just doing this to try to either, one, promote the good work they're doing, or two, they're trying to make sure that they're attractive to all the investment dollars that are out there. So you talk about other big trends in the market. So ESG is definitely on the rise. The other thing that's been going on for a long time now is the shift from active to passive. So when you look at investment dollars over the past decade, there's been this enormous shift from active management, people at uh, funds that are picking individual stocks, to passive investment, people that are investing strictly in indexes so that they're having a lower cost of asset management fees. One fun fact, you can now look and see that at NASDAQ, we uh, helped operate the NASDAQ 100 index, which is operated by Invesco, the QQQs, and it's now one of the largest indices in the world. It's got, as of 2019, about 76 billion assets under management, and we get a a tiny fraction of that. But we now actually make more uh, managing that and all the other indices that we calculate and manage than we do on U.S. equities trading. So we're making more on our passive index operations than we are on the active management of the U.S. equities trading. So that just tells you how much the shift has happened, right? But when you, you go back to the topic of ESG, so So you know that trend is happening. So you know a lot more investment dollars are going into uh, passive or index uh, investing. What are the areas in active management that's growing? It's ESG, right? So ESG-focused funds are applying additional screening and human analysis to these companies to say, okay, we want to go invest in companies that have a good environmental track record, are sustainable for the long run, have good corporate governance. It's hard to create indices around that. And we're, we're obviously working on that too. But for those funds, there is a lot of active management that goes on in it. And the good thing for corporate issuers is, if it's actively managed, that means that you can go and engage with those investors, and hopefully attract new investment dollars. Right? If it's an index fund, you're either in the S and P 500 or you're not. Right? It's not like you can go like, work on that. Right? (laughs) You can get your stock price to go up, but that's about it. So we just see a tremendous amount of interest from from the board, from CFOs, from investor relations departments. And then the other interesting group of clients is folks that have been putting out corporate social responsibility reports for years. A lot of time that function is housed under the strategy or marketing departments. They're putting out 100-page PDFs. And now all of a sudden they're saying, okay, are all of those disclosures that we've been putting in these reports for years, are they getting translated into these ESG frameworks, right? Are we getting all the credit for the good work we're doing? And then were we disclosing the right stuff, right? Maybe the company's doing other great things that didn't make it into the report for whatever reason, but some of these really influential frameworks are, you know, looking for more disclosure. So can they beef that up? Can they enhance it? And so that was one of the reasons in 2019 we launched our ESG advisory practice. One of the reasons Nasdaq's in a really unique spot to advise companies on this. Go back to that acquisition in 2008 of the OMX Group in the Nordics, who's led the whole initiative around ESG. It's really been the Nordics, right? European investors for a long time have been very focused on these metrics. It's been a big part of the the whole mantra of the EU. And so we have been deeply involved in ESG disclosure and reporting for the past 10 years through that acquisition and through the operation of the the markets in the Nordics. And so now we're bringing a lot of that know-how experience to the US. And so we think we've got a really interesting role to play there.
0: And Jeff, last question for you. What should investors or the general public expect in 2020? And if anyone wants to learn more about NASDAQ, what's the best way to go about doing it? Sure. So I think as you kind of look out at 2020, we
1: talked about how the one sure thing is that we're probably going to see more volatility this year. And you know the other thing is we are now almost 12 years into a bull market. (laughs) So everybody keeps wondering when the other shoe is going to drop, when we're going to see a, a correction. Markets operate in cycles. And so whether it's this year or the next year or the year after that, we have never seen a bull market last this long and unfortunately, the other thing we know is that the longer a bull market goes, the harder the crash and we've had pretty uh, aggressive uh, monetary policy post the financial crisis. And so I think that has fueled a lot of additional capital that's led to some of the capital that goes into the private markets. We talked about that, but it also fuels obviously a lot of leverage and a lot of debt, um, which is ultimately what, what comes back to get you when things slow down. So unfortunately, it's not a super uh, rosy note, but you know I think we'll, we'll see a lot more volatility and at some point we will see a pullback. And then, in terms of uh, how to learn more about NASDAQ, um, one of the things we really try to do is put a lot of great content on nasdaq.com. We have a lot of good content partners. And if you go right to our home screen, we've got a, a great set of videos that uh, will help keep you up to date on the markets, um, what's going on both here in the US and globally. And, you know, as I mentioned, you know, we are a global technology provider into the, the capital market. So we really think that we sit at a really interesting intersection to, to not only power those capital markets, but inform investors on what's going on.
0: Great, we'll have a link to the Nasdaq website in the show notes. Also, I want to thank Dan Angus for setting up this interview and introducing me to Jeff to allow this to happen today. And Jeff, I got to thank you for your time this morning. All right, thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. To access our resources, visit us at thesiliconvalleypodcast.com and follow our host on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Sean Flynn SV. This show is for entertainment purposes only and is licensed by the Investors Podcast Network. Before making any decisions, consult a professional.